I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Once again, Ken, it's good to be here. Over the past couple of years, we've crammed a lot of detailed technical advice and strategies into these podcasts, so I thought it might be worth taking a step back and perhaps exploring how commercial investors could improve their chances of success simply by using some common sense. Ken, you're absolutely right, and I think common sense is really underestimated in the contribution it makes towards your success because while investing in commercial property can be exciting and take you outside your comfort zone that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be adventurous in what you do and I remember my grandfather telling me years ago that it's better to be inconspicuously wealthy than ostentatiously poor and so when you're setting out with commercial property you don't necessarily have to go for broken seek the biggest and grandest property and what have you and you know there are two areas or problems that I think people come into the first of which is overextending themselves and that in itself has a couple of areas that we can talk about one is borrowing too much now you know I would say for commercial property you ought really max out at 70% now some people might say look I'm not going to borrow more than 50% well that's fine that's your choice I'm quite comfortable with that and you have to be comfortable with the level of borrowing but I have some people that come to me and say look I'll borrow at least 75 if I can get 80 I'll take it well With residential property, yes, you can borrow 80, 85, sometimes even a bit more with mortgage insurance. But with commercial property, I would counsel you to stick at around 70% because otherwise you're just going to stretch yourself too far. Now, at the moment, 70% borrowing on a commercial property earning six and three quarters, seven and a half percent is still going to show you a positive cash flow. And I think that's the way it should be. I mean, negative gearing is all well and good, but as interest rates start to rise, your interest bill will rise, whereas your rent is either fixed for the period or has fixed incremental increases. So the interest rates may well rise faster than your increase in rent people say look you know i can borrow it at five percent you know if interest rates only go up one percent that's not a big deal well understand that's actually a 20 percent increase so your incremental increases in rent may only be three three and a half if you're lucky four so that means your interest is going to escalate faster than the rent increases that are parcel of your lease The next area for overextending is in not allowing for acquisition costs. A lot of people have a certain amount of equity. They add to that the 60-70% borrowing and that's what they believe is the value of the property they can afford to buy. The problem is they come to settlement and they've got 
acquisition costs, of which stamp duty alone is 5.5%. So you're looking at somewhere between 7 and 7 and 3 quarter percent on top of the value of the property for acquisition costs. I mean, you've got legal fees, you've got valuation, mortgages, all that sort of stuff. So you need to make sure that in investigating the various properties that you are in fact looking in the right price bracket. Now none of this has anything to do with paying too much for the property. It, we're just talking about spending too much. In other words, having a an unrealistic budget. And sometimes that can work in the reverse because sometimes you look at your cash equity but you actually have another property that has equity hidden in it. In other words, you might have borrowed some time ago and you're able to refinance it or get a line of credit against the property and augment your equity. So as much as it's important that you don't overextend, you also need to make sure that you are working with the correct amount of equity. Uh, You mentioned that there were two aspects. Yes, I did mention there were two aspects. And that the second one is when we're talking about overstretching yourself financially, is having insufficient cash reserves after you bought the property. Now, as you know, more often than not, the tenant will be paying the outgoings. In some leases, if they're structured correctly, you can actually get the management fee picked up as well for the tenant to pay. But I always counsel people to have at least three, maybe four, months worth of interest coverage in a cash fund. It can be earning you the best interest you can get, but you need to have it available. Now, I'm not foreshadowing any anything untoward, but I mean, for example, sometimes for whatever reason around Christmas period, people are on holiday, they forget to pay their rent. Right? Or the, whatever the reason. It's it's not nothing sinister. They're not insolvent or in trouble. They just it just doesn't get paid, or the financial controller has some personal calamity and the rent doesn't get paid. It should be the first thing paid, but more often than not, it's not. If you can get on direct deposit, that's a bonus with your property managers, and and that's what I like to do with with most of the the payments, but. There are a number of reasons. It might be that there's some, the timing of a land tax assessment or a, a rates comes in. Now, you're, as the owner, responsible for those. You may recoup them from the tenant, but they still have to be paid. Now, depending on when it came in, it might be in the second half of the month, the tenant's already paid it, or it falls due in the second half of the month, the tenant's already paid the month's rent, it, for some reason, wasn't included on their invoice for the current month. It has to be paid and you'll recoup it next month. But you have to have that buffer so that you can sleep at night and you don't have to worry about whether or not the interest payments can be met. So all I'm saying to you is that I suggest you have at least three, probably four months as a buffer to just give you that comfort going forward. Those two relate to the financial aspect at the time of purchase and while you own it. However, I wonder what needs to be considered before you actually buy a commercial property. Well, again, 
just simple things like driving around the area and what you're looking for is the area an up and coming suburb or is it and full of older style buildings that are ready to be converted or demolished are there any or how many are there of new developments going on what vacancies are there you can generally tell that by the number of police boards and also the amount of developable land nearby. I guess what you're trying to look at is that if you're buying a property, when the lease falls due, whether it's in three, five years' time, what is your likely competition looking like? So if it's a, in an area which is being transformed and new developments are occurring, and there is suitable land for further redevelopment, then there is a risk that your sitting tenant may well be lured into a more modern, up-to-date building and you're actually having to compete and offer disproportionate incentives to either keep them or alternatively attract other tenants to your building instead of going into the new one. So it's just an understanding. Sometimes you will need to get expert advice on that, but most of this stuff can be determined simply by spending a couple of weekends driving around and having a look at it. Well, not necessarily the weekend. You're probably better to go during the day so you can see the, the level of activity. But, I mean, I guess I'm talking about in Melbourne, when the property crash occurred, I mean, vacancy rates went up around, I think it was, you know, 15, 18%. You're sort of seeing that at the moment in Brisbane and Perth. Perth's over 20%. But when we had the crash, that was the sort of level. Now, there are two suburbs, Hawthorne and Camberwell, where the vacancy rates hovered somewhere around 7 to 9% as opposed to 18 to 20%. Now, what was the reason for that? Well, the reason is that they are predominantly residential suburbs, relatively upmarket, not top of the range, but, but you know, good solid residential suburbs, reasonably close to the CBD, that has a limited amount of land zoned for commercial use, be it either retail or for offices, and even less for industrial. So it was not easy for a developer or economic for a developer to acquire sites nearby and replicate the office space that was already there. So a lot of it had been developed in the 10 years prior, so it wasn't you know, ripe for demolition and, and rebuilding again. So it meant that the vacancy rate didn't increase as much because, I mean, people wanted to be, people lived in and around that area and therefore they were happy to and wanted to work in and around that area. A lot of schools. So, you know, particularly for mums working there, that they drop the kids off at school and then drive to work. And, and and it was a very attractive proposition. So while it was hard to get buildings in those things, if you could get it, an investment there, what it meant was that even with the ups and downs of the economy, you weren't going to suffer a lengthy or significant vacancy period.
So these are the sort of things that, you know, not without too much detailed research, you can find out and, from a common sense point of view, weigh up whether or not it's an area that you ought to be investing in. Anything else you need to consider at this pre-purchase stage? Well, there are a couple of other areas that you can look in, and that is do a bit of research on uh, recent sales and try and find an angle with the property you're considering as to how easy it would be to add value. Now, as far as the sales information is concerned, some of the major agents do produce quarterly bulletins and here I'm talking about Knight Frank, CBRE, Jones Lang, LaSalle, Savills, uh, probably the main ones, where they give for the suburban areas a list of some recent sales. Invariably, they're really only giving you a list of sales that they've handled. So if you're going to use their reports, it's probably best to try and get on the mailing list to get each of their reports so you can build up some sort of database because unlike residential, it's not easy to get sales data. What I have done, and, and if you're going to be a regular investor, is that you build up a relationship with a valuer because then you don't have to worry about the individual sales. You can, when you get serious about a property, just run it past the valuer and get a feel for what the level up to which they're prepared to support because that's all you really want to know is that you're not overpaying for the property and this is, now we're talking value-wise so that when the time comes to, to get the, the valuation done that they as a valuer will support the figure that you've paid as far as the borrowing and the finance is concerned. So, you know, it's probably worth... If you don't can't build up, have that relationship that I have, is to just follow the market for a while. I mean, you pick an area, you can go on to commercialrealestate.com or some of the other portals and see what comes on the market. And even just looking at the local daily media or the financial review is to see those properties that are advertised follow them through for three, four, five months and get a gauge for what they are selling for. You know, perhaps you don't necessarily have to arrange a formal inspection, but you can get a feel for it, you get the information memorandum and build up your own database as to how it went. It might be an expression of interest or a, a, an auction. Maybe attend it if it's an auction, get a feel for the strength of the market because sometimes you know it might sell at auction, but you which if you're not there, you don't realize there was really only one bidder or two bidders, so it's pretty lackluster, whereas other auctions there might be five bidders, so that probably tells you that that's not the sort of property you should be chasing because you're going to end up having to enter the arena and compete with the other one so a little bit of market research like that is probably worthwhile if you don't have the luxury of having a relationship with a valuer. So if we're looking now at how you could add value, I mean, you've got to, I think we've talked about this in the past, but, you know, the simple things like can you subdivide it further? Um, there's one I'm looking at for a client at the moment where 
it's a two-storey, uh, it's already a strata, but it's two-storey, and the stairs are on one side, so it's not that, and that's where the entrance is, and it's not that difficult to fire-isolate the stairs to the first floor and put a separate entrance to the ground floor, so you don't have to create any extra common area, so even though it's a strata title, it is possible to create two separate titles, so effectively it enables you to buy the property wholesale, and by subdividing it, if you ever down the track want to do sell it, you can sell it on a sort of effectively retail basis because you've effectively halved the size of the requirement for the next purchaser. But even if you choose to sell it as a whole, the next buyer has the comfort of knowing that if he or she ever got caught, they could sell off one or other of the titles. So that by itself will reduce the the uh, capitalisation rate. So if it was seven and a half percent when you bought it as a whole, by creating the two separate titles or and just creating that, doing nothing more, it probably reduces your selling yield to around seven percent. So automatically, it adds significant value to the property at very little cost to achieve. And then you've got just a simple upgrade of the property. It may be that it, it is a little tired, the carpets need renewing, what have you. And you know, if you're clever, you can get it done and even work with the existing tenant. Uh, it may be a bit of a fiddle having to do it over a couple of weekends or something like that so as not to disrupt their business. But you know, a, a quick clean-up, carpet painting, and uh, any other things that are necessary, just things like adding another a, a security system that might suit them. They might that might be the thing that swings the deal. All of these upgrades adds to your depreciation claims. So this is where it, a it gets you more rent, but b it gets more deductions as far as your um, your income tax is concerned. And even if you're not going to upgrade. Simple things like restructuring the lease. The lease is falling due. It may be a gross lease. You you renew it and make it a net lease. There's all sorts of things you can do to very inexpensively and quickly add value to the property. You talked about driving around the neighbourhood to determine the vacancy level and general appeal. What about spotting emerging trends? Well... New suburbs need the basics. I mean, when you see these outlying suburbs set up, one of the first things that goes in there is a Bunnings will go in because they realise with homeowners, sure, they might have a new home, but there are a whole host of things that they don't do. Generally, the landscaping is pretty basic, the new home, so there's going to need a lot of gardening equipment and pot plants, and or not pot plants, plants to put in the garden. And the handyman will generally finish off what is the basic new home and then improvements will be made in ensuing years. So there are things like a lot of them are working mums and dads. So things like a charcoal chicken and subways and some of those basic food, you know, pizzas and things like that, which are all good food. They're not, I mean, some of it is, your class is fast food, but most of it is, is reasonably healthy. And I'm not talking McDonald's here and, and KFC. 
I'm talking those smaller ones that are, are franchises and, and affordable, but the franchisor is not going to open up a franchise location unless they are satisfied that the demographics are there. Whereas in past podcasts I've talked about my concern with retail, most of it is, or most of my concern is with the specialty shops, the, the we have discretion, like fashion, accessories, shoes, all those sort of things. Now, initially, you're not going to see those sort of shops come in these new suburbs. But to have a one of these food outlets where, you know, mum on the way home from picking up the kids will buy a charcoal chicken and that's dinner. And it'll be a regular thing. It mightn't happen every day, but it'll happen, you know, a certain day in the week because of they've got swimming or after-school sport and they just don't have time to prepare the meal. So you'll find that there is a, effectively a captive population because they're not going to go far and wide to, to get those sort of things. And therefore that would be something good. And that's when you talk about trends. But in established areas, when I say established, they've been there for a while, but the question is, are they ready to really take off? And you may well be looking at some of the regional cities because some people have asked, you know, buying in these regional or country areas, is that good value? Well, you certainly get higher yields, but you get the initial income return, if it's high, means that your capital growth is probably not going to be as great as if it were in the city. But the point is, and I've said this before, that there comes a stage where, yes, you've got McDonald's and Kentucky Fried, they've been there, and perhaps Subway, but you get the, these subsequent ones, which is more, a bit more upmarket, like Nando's, Gloria Jeans, Starbucks, and so forth. Some of those more, when I say upmarket, that's probably overstating it, but they're more discretionary items. Whereas I said, you know, charcoal chicken's not. I mean, chicken is chicken. Nando's is a specialty chicken. So once you start to see an influx of these other national chains coming through, that tells you that the demographics are right. There's a tipping point reached. And therefore, you'll start to see smaller offices start to be built, small office buildings, strata title, because it's getting to be a commercial hub. And that neighbourhood is starting to take on its own identity. It's not just providing service facilities like in a new suburb. It's now got its own self-contained environment and it starts to get a bit of a buzz about it. So without getting too technical, it's those sort of trends that you can take advantage of and get in on the ground floor. Okay. You've now bought the property. Apart from ensuring you have sufficient backup cash, what other simple things should you do? Well, the first thing I'd do is select a good property manager. And I know we've covered this in the past, but I mean, a good property manager makes sure the rent's paid on time, the outgoings are scrutinised, and yes, I know the tenants will pay the outgoings, but you want to make sure they're not paying any more than they should be paying. 
because while it doesn't come out of your pocket, it, it will eventually come rent review time because a valuer, if an argument gets as to the market review, will determine what is the total occupancy cost for that tenant. Now, if your building has outgoings disproportionately high when compared to others, they will then discount the rent because it's the rent plus outgoings that the tenant pays. As far as you're concerned, you only get the rent. So you want to make sure that your rent is maintained at the highest possible level. And also, a good property manager makes sure that the maintenance occurs on time. And again, while a tenant may be responsible for repairs and maintenance, they generally will ring the managing agent who will organise it and then recoup it. But the relationship with the property manager is important because you want the tenant in a good mood come rent review time. And you want them to know that you are a good landlord, you see them effectively as the partner in your business, and that is of owning the property, and you look after them, not that you kowtow to them, but you have a very professional, and your property manager does have a very professional approach to the way things are done. What about picking your time to sell? Well, as you know, what I say to my clients is that they have to have a a mandatory four-year review. That doesn't mean you you can't consider what you do earlier than that, but come four years, you must review the property and convince yourself as to why you should continue to hold it. And if you're not able to do that convincingly, then maybe you should look at selling the property. And it's just a discipline. That's what we're talking about. Now, Against that, or set the backdrop against which that's set, is you need to know where you are in the cycle for that property. We've talked about cycles before, whereas the office market tends to have an 18-year cycle, the industrial market a nine-year cycle, and the retail market a six-year cycle. So different sectors tend to move at different speeds, and It's not until all three cycles come together that you end up in what is referred to generally as a boom. Now, for Sydney and Melbourne, I think that's likely to happen around 2019, 2020. For the other capital cities, because they are now way out of sync with uh, Melbourne and Sydney, that's going to be much later on, probably three, four, probably for Perth, five, six years later. So it's, it's understanding... A, the type of property, but B, the geography of where it is and the cycle. So the, the important thing is that you, you know, when you choose your time to sell, yes, you want to be at the top of the market, but you don't want to be right at the top. You want to always leave a bit of blue sky for the next purchaser. So, you know, when the market's rising, everyone thinks it'll go on forever. It won't. But that's the point you need to sell. So that doesn't mean you have to sell. If the lease is such that it, it's you know it's five years to go and it's going to straddle any peak and, and, and levelling out, that's fine. But if you've, let's say, just renewed the lease and it's got three or four years to run, that would pro- and you reckon you're pretty close to the peak and you take advice on that, then 
that offers a good incentive to the next purchaser coming in. You know, what you've covered today has probably filled in a lot of gaps and helped to simplify the process for our listeners. Look, Ken, as I've often said before, commercial property need not be overly complicated. Sure, if you're going to go it alone, there are certain specialist skills that you'll need, but if you engage the right consultants, your best contribution is simply to adopt a common-sense approach.